According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We are approaching the end of the chapter. It may not seem like it, but we are, and getting ready to begin chapter 10. We do, though, have to deal with these issues of the new covenant and what our Lord was doing when he went to heaven to cleanse the heavenly temple. And uh, some aspects here that hopefully um, we're going to be solid on. And even if we don't understand entirely, we can at least uh, accept by faith what what the text is saying. The text is telling us that he went to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. And that the procedures that they followed in the Old Testament for wiping blood on the altar and wiping blood on the on the laver and on the uh, the uh, table of incense and on the candlestick, they had to anoint the furnishings and the tabernacle itself. They had to sprinkle blood on the veil, and all of that was done to cleanse the earthly replica. But it was done as a as shadow doctrine, as typology for what Jesus would have to do in cleansing the heavenly temple. And Hebrews 9 gives us actually the snapshot of when that happened and actually details how he went there, not with animal blood, not with the blood of a substitute, but with his own blood. He actually went there having had the victory on the cross. He went to heaven and cleansed the heavenly temple. And we want to understand this for what it is as well. And so uh, we'll spend some time again. We've been here. We're here this morning. We'll be here for a few more classes anyway to get to get through the rest of Hebrews 9, and get ready for Hebrews 10. Before we start, though, let's go to the Father in prayer and ask for His faithfulness to to teach us these very deep things. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for truth and the blessing we have to live the Word of God. I thank you that you teach us, you lead us, we learn so that we can live. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding this morning. We're looking at some heavenly realities. We're also looking at some dispensational distinctions. Why Israel is different from the church and how you dealt with Israel as a nation. So Father, we want to understand that also and not be confused in our own uh, applications as far as where we are in the body of Christ. All of this, Father, is impossible apart from your grace But by your grace, Father, and through your strength, we can learn everything you have for us today. We call upon your faithfulness yet again in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, and so really, there is a tremendous development here talking about what those guys did compared to what Jesus did. And so uh, you have the description of the tabernacle in verses 1 through 5. And then uh, with, that, with the veils and the ark and the cherubim and all of that. And then in verses 6 through 10, you have a description of what that priesthood was doing, the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, what they would do, bringing blood and, and all the sacrifices, and yet how there were limits, how uh, it was only a shadow. These gifts and sacrifices could not make the worshipers perfect in conscience. And then there's a difference between Jesus. And in verse 11, we have the description of what Jesus did. And it says in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So he went to the heavenly reality and he operated there in a way that none of the Levitical priests could do in the replica. Nothing that they could do in the earthly replica could come close. It could paint a picture. It could anticipate and teach a a shadow doctrine, but it could not accomplish the reality of what Jesus did when he went to the heavenly and when he cleansed the heavenly temple. And so this is what Jesus did. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, made without hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Not in the time, space, you know, physical universe. It's in the heavenly dimension beyond our experience. And, verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Remember, the high priest had to offer animal sacrifices before he would pass through the veil. And if he didn't follow those procedures correctly, he was struck dead for approaching the Shekinah glory in the earthly replica without the right animal sacrifices. Well, Jesus, 
He, he passed not just through a veil, he passed through the heavens to stand in the presence of God himself in the holy of holies in the heavens. And it wasn't with animal blood that got him there. It wasn't with the blood of goats and bulls or anything else. Through his own blood, having victoriously accomplished the work at Calvary. All right? Did I say that again? Calvary. Not cavalry, Calvary. All right. On the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. He also died on the cross to cleanse the heavenly temple. He also died on the cross to mediate the new covenant with Israel. Three different things that were all done by virtue of the victory that was accomplished on the cross. Not the same thing. Three different things that he accomplished through one work of obedience on the cross. And so the sooner we wrap our minds around that, I think the better we're going to do now. So we have what Christ did in verses 11 through 14. And then there's a kind of a, a break. There's a parenthesis, if you will. We'll, we'll get back to it in verse 23. In verse 23 and following again, we're going to talk about Jesus in the heavens and what, what he was doing. You spot that there in verse 23. It was necessary for the copies, in other words, the shadow replica, to be cleansed with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. So this whole picture of heaven itself that we looked at in in, uh, 11 through 14, we're going to get back to that again in verses uh, 23 and following. But for now, for today, we're here in 15 through 22, and this, uh, this becomes significant. We've got to stop and, and recognize why the new covenant keeps getting mentioned again and again and again. And so uh, it says in verse 15, for this reason, let me make sure we're, we know what reason this is. This is us being saved. In verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All right, now that becomes then our context for today. We're not talking about those guys. We're not talking about Israel. We're not talking about, uh, we're talking about you, your conscience, the church. We are the living sacrifices. We walk with our Lord. We are operating in this heavenly temple. We, we function with our Savior in the heavenly places. This is our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ, Right? That's what verse 14 is talking about. Talking about the the church. If you just want to put the church in there, fine. Put the church in there. So we're clear that Jesus is a mediator, but he also has ministers. He has a body of servants that are going to work with him when it comes time in the millennial kingdom to bring in the new covenant. When it comes time for him to be the mediator of the new covenant, he's going to have ministers. He's going to have deacons, as it were. You know, what, how does the church operate if all you got is a pastor and no deacons? That's going to be a very worn out pastor <laughs> trying to do everything himself, trying to, no, the pastor needs deacons. Jesus needs deacons when it comes to the mediator of the new covenant. And we're called the deacons, the ministers, the servants of the new covenant in Second Corinthians chapter three. So we want to understand these things here as well. All right. So how much more does the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And this is where we were a week ago as we were talking about how the living God takes no pleasure in dying sacrifices and takes no pleasure in dead works. Mosaic law is dead works. Every sacrifice under Mosaic law is a dying sacrifice. And all the works under Mosaic law are called dead works. We have the living sacrifice in Christ. So Romans 12, Romans 6, all the other passages that talk about our priesthood and the sacrifices we bring. We bring living sacrifice because we bring ourselves. All day, every day, you and I, we are the living sacrifices in this priesthood in Christ. What was Christ's sacrifice when he was hanging on the cross? He sacrificed himself. What's our sacrifice when we're walking our Christian walk? It's ourself, ourselves as the living sacrifice for the good pleasure of God the Father and the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're clear on that, we can proceed to verse 15. Because it's for this reason, for this reason, 
that He is victorious at the cross, that He has cleansed the heavenly temple, that He has a priesthood to work with Him. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, if Jesus didn't do what He did on the cross, they couldn't have the millennial kingdom. And it's different reasons than why you and I have eternal life, all right? And if Jesus didn't do what he did on the cross, and if we weren't suited to be his bride, they couldn't have their millennial kingdom because the king needs a queen. And there is a queen mentioned in in Psalm 45. And there is a role for the bride of Christ as the ministers of the new covenant, and uh, which requires us to be this Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. So for this reason, and... uh, Here's what we're looking at here today, all right? Understand, Israel as a redeemed nation stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer, having broken the covenant they were placed under as a redeemed nation. This then sets the the stage for what is going to bring them into the Jewish kingdom, into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ when he sits on the throne of David in the millennium. Israel as a redeemed nation stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer. There's no other nation in the history of the world that, G- that God chose to redeem and claim for Himself. He calls Israel His firstborn. He calls Israel His child. He calls Israel His wife in some context. All right, Israel is the covenant nation on this earth. There's never been another. Every other nation that's not Israel is Gentile. Israel is the Jewish nation. They are the covenant people before God. And just because they're presently on hold doesn't mean He's done with them. They've been on hold since the cross, since they rejected their Messiah. They've been on hold ever since. But they have a future, and it's been promised to them. And they will resume their program after the church is raptured. The the moment we're gone, God resumes His dealings with Israel. We want to be clear on that, that He is not finished with the Jewish people. If you've ever attended a church before that tells you that we've replaced them, that's called replacement theology, and it is dead wrong. It is unbiblical. That how can God replace a, a, a people to whom He's made eternal promises? If he, if he doesn't fulfill those promises, then God's a liar. See? And nothing stops Him from lying to us as well. If that's the kind of God He is, if He can be a liar, well then we're in trouble because He promised me eternal life. <laughs> I hope He's not a liar. All right, He's not a liar. And he can't take my eternal life and give it to somebody else and say that he's keeping his promise with me. If he's going to keep his promise with me, that means he's got to keep my eternal life with me. He can't take the promises to Israel and give them to the church. Right? I mean, this ought to be just clear. Anybody that's ever been married ought to know this. You stand before the Lord, you say a vow, and if you're going to be faithful to your wife, you can't be faithful with a different woman and say, well, I'm faithful with you because I'm faithful with her. What's that? That's called unfaithful, all right? So same thing. He made promises to Israel. And he can't just now change and say, well, I'm now going to give those promises to the church. No. Israel has a future, but they have a problem though. The problem is, is they totally broke that old covenant. They are in complete rebellion against the old covenant. And that was a covenant with tremendous consequences. Consequences of wrath and judgment. And so in order for them to have that dealt with, they need a substitute to take the penalty of that wrath and judgment. Sound familiar? All right, as a nation, they need those national sins dealt with so that they can then proceed forward into their new covenant. And this is what we are going to understand here today. So keep in mind, um, in Hebrews 9.15, a death has taken place for the redemption of the, not sins, but transgressions committed under the first covenant. National violations of Mosaic law. That's what it's dealing with. Now you and I don't have any national violations of Mosaic law because you and I were never under Mosaic law. No Gentile nation was ever ever under Mosaic law. The wickedest Gentile nation in the history of the world, the Assyrian nation, they were never under Mosaic law. This verse, this concept has nothing to do with your personal sins, with Adam's original sin, with is dealing with Israel's national transgressions under Mosaic 
law. All right, if we embrace that, everything else gets easier. Let's go to Exodus 19. If you want to hold your finger there, you can, or uh, maybe stick a church bulletin there. I'm going to use my song sheet. There it is. All right, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Israel is redeemed as a nation. They are the covenant nation. All the Jewish people were brought out of Egypt, whether they were believers or not, whether they were saved or not. Imagine, you know, a lot of them, I'm sure, had eternal life. Imagine a lot of them did not have eternal life. It didn't matter. The earthly nation of Israel was redeemed out of Egypt and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. All right? They have a national redemption. And as a redeemed people now, they belong to their Redeemer. If somebody buys you in the marketplace, you now belong to them. They were purchased by the Lord, redeemed out of Egypt. But now they're in a broken covenant. And uh, when this covenant was first given, it's curious, they, uh, you, we can read about this here, Exodus 19, they come to Sinai, and uh, in verse 7, and this was such a terrible um, a fearful mountain, there was smoke, there was thunder. In verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Notice, when you stand at the altar and you say, I do, or you say, I will, you say the language of a vow before the Lord, the God of truth holds you to that vow. They are the covenant nation vowing to be obedient. And this Mosaic law was a law with a great big if in it. If this, then that. If this, then that. Blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. Thankfully, of course, Jesus became the curse so he could redeem Israel from their national transgressions under Mosaic law. All right, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and they may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. All right, then, uh, yeah, there's a verse here that makes me laugh. Um, I think we'll just let it go. Though The Lord said to Moses, uh, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. Why do you think the third day is significant? What's that third day all about? Okay, well, beyond, of course, why we love it in the resurrection of Christ and our walk to the newness of life, there is also, of course, a national application for Israel. Their national sins are being removed as a covenant nation. And, uh, all right, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware, you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. This is a, this is a fearsome thing, all right? He said to the people in verse 15, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. That's the verse that makes me laugh. All right. The point is, though, this is a national... By the way, marital relations would leave them unclean, ceremonially unclean. Having a baby would leave a woman unclean, ceremonially unclean. Twice as long if it's a boy as opposed to a girl. Um, anyway, or the other way around. I got that backwards. Twice as long for a girl. Thank you. All right. Let's go to chapter 24. Because this is, we can't, we struggle to relate to this. The United States of America was never in a covenant relationship with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. All right. Um, we've, we've had a, an abundance of born-again believers, salt and light. We've been blessings to this world as a Gentile salt and light nation, but we've never been a covenant nation. We've not been redeemed as a nation by a Redeemer. So in Exodus 24, they have a second chance to not repeat their vow, and they're going to repeat it. And... Um, He said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, they're not dead yet, and 70 of the elders of Israel, you shall worship at a distance. 
Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. And this is shadows and doctrines. There's typology here. Moses is a type of Christ. They're going to require a mediator. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment. Moses is the shadow in this, uh, in this chapter. Moses alone, just like Jesus alone on the cross. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now think about it. Think about how different it was on Friday, April 3rd, standing before Pontius Pilate. And the nation of Israel said, crucify him, give us Barabbas. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. As a nation, they were rejecting the Christ who is preparing to go to the cross and redeem them. So here they say, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountains with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with you going to heaven when you die, your personal sins. This is dealing with the nation of Israel and their transgressions under Mosaic law. He sent young men and the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. All right, now this is key. We've talked about it before, but let's look at it again. The blood of the covenant has separate applications and they're not done simultaneously. And so it's like when you got a recipe and you're following the recipe and you're mixing up your batter and you're mixing up your, your stuff and then you got a bowl and you set it aside. You'll need it later. You're just not going to use it right now because right now you're using this bowl over here. All right. And so they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So the animals die in verse 5. That, that's, that's undeniable. Dead animals in verse 5. So the sacrifice is finished. We can say to tell us die, it is finished. The death is done in verse 5. But there still remains blood applications to make after the death is done. So in verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So there's the set-aside blood in basins, and then there's the blood that's applied on the altar. Why does the altar have to be cleansed before the people are cleansed? Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So they uttered their vow before the animals died. They uttered their vow after the animals had died. And when the blood had been set aside, also, by the way, after the altar was cleansed. That's huge. Okay. Prophetically, that's huge for Israel. All right, so then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, and, and now if you close your eyes, it all, it's almost going to sound like Jesus in the upper room giving communion. Now, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus was citing this passage in the upper room with his disciples. He's teaching them about communion. He's teaching them about bread and wine. And he said, the blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. And notice, Jesus didn't sprinkle his disciples. He drank the cup. Said it was his last one until the kingdom. Essentially, when we take communion, our toast is to the deferment of the Jewish promises. That they are not, that they are not yet a sprinkled people. And because they're not yet a sprinkled people, you and I are the people of God, the bride of Christ, the church. All right, so then he sprinkles it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Then they get to approach. Now that they are under the covenant, now that they are under Mosaic covenant, and they've been blood sprinkled, now they can draw near. 
having been blood sprinkled, they can draw near. And they do. Including even Nadab and Abihu, those rascals, they're going to be dead here shortly. But in this chapter, they're participating. And they saw the God of Israel, and under His feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So we talk about the you know, the crystal sea and the other language there that we sing about. Alright, so here is a redeemed nation. And they are bought by the, they are redeemed out of Egypt and they are called as a covenant nation. And the substitute animals are slain and the blood is sprinkled. So now they are a covenant nation, a redeemed nation. The problem is, is after this chapter, how long does it take for them to go carnal and, and start uh, idol worship, right? And to, uh, doesn't take long. So we got the altar, we got the garments, we got the sacrifice, we got the priests, the altar of incense, and uh, it doesn't take long. Chapter 32, golden calf. (laughs) All right, just like that. Wow. You talk about a redeemed nation that quicker than anything just becomes playing the harlot in their idolatry and in their spiritual adultery. It, It happens quickly. And it will be their history and it will be their practice for Old Testament history to the point that they're taken into Babylonian captivity to the point that they're dispersed. They lose their nation. In 70 AD, their temple was destroyed and they were dispersed to the four corners of the earth, not to be reassembled until some of you, your lifetime. All right? I wasn't born yet. But nevertheless, the modern state of Israel All right. So a redeemed people. Let's look at uh, now Jeremiah 31. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And those are probably the happiest words Israel could even imagine. A new covenant. That's great because we made a mess of that old one. (laughs) All right? Wow. A new covenant? That's amazing because we have broken that other one so badly. We are in such darkness. We are in such rebellion. And the consequences under that covenant, if we don't get a, if we don't renegotiate this contract, right? If we don't get a new covenant, the terms of that covenant are unthinkable. I mean, it's just horrendous. It's wrath and judgment and destruction for people that are supposed to be here forever. So God's got to resolve a dilemma. He's either got to destroy an eternal people, or you see what I'm saying? He's got to bring about a death sufficient to redeem the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He's got to have a substitute, a redeemer, the fulfillment of what Moses was just the shadow of in order to bring them into the millennial kingdom. So, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand. The covenant we just read in Exodus. Not but like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. My covenant which they broke. Praise God that He's replacing that with the new covenant. And that he prophesied it, you know, 600 years ahead of time. Well, six hundred, well, 586 years ahead of time from the standpoint of Jeremiah to the cross. Now add 2,000 years beyond that. Because here we are today. This is still future. This is still a valid pending promise that he has to make good on. He made his promises. He's going to make good on them. He doesn't need our help to do it. All right. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, they've got to go through wrath, first of all, tribulation. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. So they're not going to get stone tablets. Jesus is not going to give them stone tablets the way Moses gave them stone tablets. 
He's going to write it on their heart. They will have His law written on their heart. They will, I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother. The Jewish people are going to have an insight into the Word of God because it's going to be written in their very soul, the heart, the core of their being. They'll have to teach Gentiles, but they won't be teaching themselves. No Jew will have to teach a fellow Jew in the Millennial Kingdom because they're going to have built-in knowledge straight from God Himself. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Notice the singular tense on these. Iniquity singular, sin singular. These are the national sins of Israel under Mosaic Covenant. And He's wiping that all away. They will once again be a covenant nation. They will be a redeemed nation, not in a broken relationship. They will be a redeemed nation in a preserved relationship, a restored relationship with their Redeemer. Given a new covenant. No longer, see as it says, they're having broken the covenant, they're replaced under as a redeemed nation. Okay, so now this becomes significant because this is what God has to do. He has to take a people that totally broke it under that first covenant and He has to prepare them for the second covenant. This is why now when John the Baptist came, what did he start doing? His first primary command was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The role of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Christ is this Jewish nation has to get serious in their, in their walk. You've got to be a believer and you've got to be walking in the light or you're not entering into the millennial kingdom. See? So he had that message of repentance and it's going to be the role of the two witnesses in the tribulation. They're going to be preaching repentance. It's going to be a gospel of repentance, a gospel of the kingdom coming up for Israel in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Alright, so that's significant as well. A greater sacrifice, a conscience cleansing sacrifice, a once and for all perfecting sacrifice makes Jesus Christ suitable to mediate the new covenant. Makes Jesus Christ suitable to mediate the new covenant. He, that's what Hebrews 9.15 is telling us. By the way, it also makes the body and bride of Jesus Christ suitable to minister the new covenant. We get to be the ministers with Christ to the Jewish people. It also makes the body and bride of Jesus Christ suitable to minister the new covenant. And we'll look at 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and Hebrews 11 here in a moment. Because there was no sacrifice provided anywhere in Mosaic law that was going to deal with Israel and their national rebellion. None. There was nothing. You can scour Leviticus all you want. You can scour the whole Pentateuch all you want. You can scour the whole Old Testament all you want. And other than the promise of a new covenant, there is nothing given under that old covenant by which the nation of Israel has any prayer, has any hope, has any answer to their national rebellion. It's going to be the new covenant that's going to, it's going to found the, the kingdom, not Mosaic law. So a greater sacrifice, a conscience-cleansing sacrifice, a once-and-for-all perfecting sacrifice makes Jesus Christ suitable to mediate the new covenant. All of these are principles we've been studying in recent weeks. The greater sacrifice, the conscience-cleansing, that's, that's huge. Animal ritual didn't do any of that. Animal ritual just left you physically cleansed and ceremonially able to take part. And all those animal rituals were done again and again and again and again every year. Year in, year out, here we go again. Jesus was once and for all. Once and for all perfecting sacrifice makes Jesus suitable to mediate the new covenant. Okay? And that right there, I hope you just chew on it. If you have questions on it, ask me. Uh, Wednesday night, of course, we have a question and answer night. To me, the biggest favor you'll ever do yourself is when you realize that multiple things were happening on the cross. That multiple things were happening. That by virtue of His victory there, He is now qualified to do a lot of things. And they're not the same thing. They're different. He's suitable to be the Melchizedek high priest of our confession. 
And he's suitable to do that because of his victory on the cross. That's different than his suitability to mediate the new covenant. That's different than his suitability to break the seals and and cast wrath upon the earth. Wow. That's That's a separate issue altogether. Not on my notes, not on the screen, just off the top of my head. You ever, I mean, Revelation 4 and 5, right? John's up in heaven, he's looking, and there's a scroll, and it's broken. It's got seven seals on the scroll. And the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break these seven seals? You know the passage I'm talking about? And then no one's worthy. They search heaven, they search earth. No one is worthy. And so John starts to weep. And then one of the elders says, stop weeping. And then he sees the lamb, the lamb standing, having been slain. And the lamb is worthy. The lamb has overcome. The lamb is able to take the scroll and to break the seals. Well, guess what? He has that worthiness because of his victory at the cross. It's the same validation. It's the same worthiness. It's the same basis that makes him worthy to break the the seals is the same worthiness that makes him worthy to be the mediator of the new covenant. But they're different things. Breaking the seals is not mediating the new covenant. Breaking the seals is just throwing wrath on earth to judge Antichrist and the fallen nations of this, of this tribulational world. You see why they're different? Likewise, the, his victory at the cross makes him worthy to be the apostle and high priest of our confession. He holds his priesthood permanently. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's worthy to attain to that title because of his victory at the cross. But that's different than being the mediator of the new covenant or the breaker of the seals or the head of the church or other titles and offices that he holds. Understand the blood of the cross did a lot of different things. The blood of the cross cleansed the heavenly temple. We're seeing that in this chapter. The blood of the cross also gave me eternal life. The blood of the cross also presently cleanses me from all sins. The blood of the cross does a lot of things. Not just We want to have a bigger, a broader view for what the blood of the cross accomplished. All right. And so it makes Jesus Christ suitable to mediate the new covenant. It also makes the body and bride of Christ suitable to, as ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.4, we can look at that. 2 Corinthians 3.4. where we want to be careful to observe our present adequacies and our future adequacies. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Remember when Israel was going to receive the law written on their hearts? So there's spiritual heart writing that happens in the kingdom, but it happens when God does the writing and the Jewish people have their hearts written upon. This chapter in the church, we have spiritual writing as well, but it's not God doing the writing, it's us doing the writing. It's not on the Jewish nation, it's on one another. So there's similarities, but there's also differences. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? You know, what kind of credentials do you need? When I walked in this morning, no one asked for my ID. Actually, I was the first one here and I unlocked the door. But no one asked for my ID. And when I got up in the pulpit, no one asked for my ID. They didn't ask for my credentials. They didn't want my diploma. They didn't want my, they didn't want, you know, are you sure you're a pastor? Are you sure you're our pastor? It was obvious because my flock is my diploma. My flock is my identification. I have written on your hearts, and you have written on my heart. We write on one another's hearts as we serve one another in this way. And so you, it says in verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested, you're a letter of Christ, cared for by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now some people, when they get sloppy, they think, well, that's the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. And so the church is in the new covenant, and it's just wrong. All right. Similar language, but quite different. Now, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So in verse 4, we have confidence. Verse 5, we have adequacy. And all of this is present here and now, right here, right now. And I can stand and preach this morning with confidence. I can stand and preach this morning with adequacy. And it comes from God. It doesn't come from me. It's the strength that God supplies. It's the power He endues me with power. I stand with the strength He supplies. My adequacy is from God. My confidence, my adequacy. All right. So we see the present confidence and the present adequacy in verse 5. That's what is. But then he goes on to say, who also... Like, wow, isn't that enough? I mean, I'm happy with the present adequacy. I'm, this is amazing. You mean there's more? Yes. <laughs> it's like those old commercials. But wait, there's more. Okay? Who also made us adequate as servants, deacons, ministers of a new covenant of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Minister of the new covenant where it's going to be written on Israel's heart. Not of the letter, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What we have today in our living sacrifice, the Jews are going to enjoy in the millennial kingdom. They're going to have a living sacrifice themselves in their, uh, in their stewardship coming up. All right. So we are adequate as servants of a new covenant, just as Jesus is adequate as the mediator. We are adequate as the ministers. Mediator, ministers. Or deacons, if you prefer. The word is diakonoi, plural. Ministers, deacons, servants. All right, how about Hebrews 11? Here's a preview for what we'll get to in a couple of chapters. It's a hall of fame of faith. It's kind of the roll call of Old Testament saints. And um, they all walked by faith. Uh, from Moses onward, they walked under the law. Um, and they had promises they were looking forward to. And I'm not going to read a 40-verse chapter, but I'm going to start. Uh, let me just get to the end of it here. Um, all the things they went through. Verse 32 says, What more shall I say? Time will fail me. All the great preachers, they just run out of time. And they just have to hurry it up before the closing prayer. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He's just running out of time. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness that were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Isn't that amazing? This was Israel's heritage. The Jewish people and their legacy. We think about our, you know, our founding fathers and we think about, you know, great American leaders from the past. They're not written in the Bible. George Washington's not in the Bible. Their heroes are in Scripture. Okay? Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured. Um, Not accepting their release, they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That was Isaiah by tradition. They were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. All the Gentile nations on the earth did not deserve a covenant nation, even as flawed as Israel. A covenant nation like the Jewish nation. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Let me stop right there because I think we read that the wrong way all too often. They did not receive what was promised. Well, what was promised? Under Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, what was promised was land, seed, and blessing, and they did not receive that. That's true. But also under Moses in the covenant of works, what was promised? 
Because they broke that covenant. All right, what was promised? Destruction, wrath, judgment. Okay. And while he dispersed them amongst the uh, four corners of the earth, he scattered the Jewish people to all the Gentile nations of the earth. He did not destroy them as a people. They exist to this day. They will always exist. The sun, moon, and stars will burn out before the Jewish people can be exterminated. They did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us. Again, there's a them versus us contrast here. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They would not be made perfect. In other words, it requires the calling out of a bride. It requires the calling out of a covenant people different from that covenant people. It requires the calling out of a heavenly people having been cleansed, having their conscience cleansed, having been made perfect, a bride suitable for the mediator. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Jesus is literally the firstborn of many brethren in two different ways. Brethren of us as the bride of Christ and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but he's also brethren with the Jews. And those brethren, he also has to bring to glory. But apart from us, you can't bring them to glory. The bride must be finished before Israel can be glorified. All right. All of this comes out here in verse uh, 15. And then it gets built upon in 16, 17, all the way down through 22. Thirdly, this greater sacrifice did not abolish the first covenant, but fulfilled it. This greater sacrifice did not abolish the first covenant, but fulfilled it. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law. He didn't do away with it. When he makes the, uh, when he brings about the new covenant, he does make the first one obsolete. It is obsolete, ready to disappear. The reason why is because he fulfilled it. He accepted all the wrath that first covenant demanded. He was the substitute for Israel's national judgment. The greater sacrifice did not abolish the first covenant, but fulfilled it in a victorious conclusion that in the future will provide for Israel's broken relationship to be restored. In the future, it will provide for their eternal national inheritance to be received. So right now he's in the portion of that picture where the death has happened, the blood has been divided, part of it has been set aside in bowls, and then part of it went to sprinkle the altar. That's what Jesus did when he went to heaven and he sprinkled the altar. But he still has this other blood that's set apart in bowls. He still has that set apart blood in bowls. It's been set apart now for 2,000 years. It's ready to be sprinkled on the Jewish people at second advent. It's ready to be sprinkled, but not until they are prepared to utter the oath that they have to, pre- they have to utter. They have to accept their Messiah. They have to accept, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to accept the sacrifice that was made on their behalf. That the substitute accepted the wrath for their national sins committed under the first covenant. Matthew 5.17. I hope we're clear on this. Matthew 5.17. Strictly speaking, the United States of America is not the salt of the earth. Israel is. We're not the light of the world. Israel is. We're just functioning in a salt and light-like replica or facsimile in the age of grace, that is, the dispensation of the church. All right, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does that mean? That means that all of the wrath that has to be poured out upon Israel has to be poured out. That Israel is the covenant nation in broken relationship with their Redeemer. And under Mosaic law, God's wrath has to be applied. 
except Jesus will take the place of Israel. He will accept the, the wrath for their national rebellion. You tracking with this? It's very similar to how you got saved, right? Because he took your sins. He accepted God's wrath for your sins, your personal sins. He took God's wrath for Adam's original sin, the estate of in Adam positional truth sin that we have. He took that as well. He took your personal sins as well. Beyond all that, he took the national rebellion of Israel the sins that were committed, the transgressions that were committed under the Mosaic law. He took that wrath as well so that that covenant could be not abolished but fulfilled. It did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. How about Daniel? Daniel chapter 9. All right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you get to Hosea, you've gone too far. If you get to Hosea, I'm impressed. That's a hard book to find. Daniel. Again, I could read an entire chapter for you this morning. I'm not going to, but Daniel is... uh, (laughs) Daniel is um, an amazing hero. He's described as Noah, Daniel, and Job as the three greatest heroes of the Old Testament. That uh, Daniel was an amazing, mature hero of Old Testament faith. And um, he's lived through 70 years of captivity. He was taken away in 605 B.C. He was actually taken away prior to the the 586 Uh, national dispersion. He was taken early. He was one of the early hostages taken in 605. And uh, now he's lived through the entire 70 years. Now he's an old man. He was a youth. Now he's old. Okay? 70 years have gone by. And he's reading Scripture. Daniel 9.2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's a Bible scholar. He's got a literal hermeneutic. He's studying the prophets. He's reading Jeremiah like you and I are reading Jeremiah. And he goes, okay, this captivity is going to last 70 years. But then he says, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem. We're not repentant. We've got a problem. We're still in violation. We're still a covenant people, a redeemed people in violation of our covenant. We're rebels. And the provision under Mosaic law is uh, wrath. (laughs) I mean, what else is there? We're supposed to come back after 70 years and we're not repentant. And so he's going to basically issue a national intercessory confession here. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Do we pray for our nation like this? Do we say, Lord... Our legislatures are passing infanticide laws. Are we confessing our nation's sins? I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. But also He's faithful to pour out wrath on those who defy Him. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is to this day. Seventy years later, it's still the same. To the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. They are in open violation of Mosaic law. They have no hope under the first covenant. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. 
Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us. That's all they could get under Mosaic law. The only thing they could expect is the curse. Along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us this great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. No Gentile nation ever had the personal wrath of God like the Jewish nation. Not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not Nineveh. God's own people in violation of First, Advent, uh, First Covenant commands. In verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Seventy years now of captivity. Yet we have not sought the grace, the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity, giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought, on it, brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. This is the national rebellion of the Jewish people. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. He says, we're, we're rebels, but we're still yours. Jerusalem is your city. We are your people. We don't deserve this. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, not our sake, your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. Jerusalem is called by your name. Before that it was just Salem. Melchizedek was king of Salem. But now it's Jerusalem. We are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, obviously. We have none. But on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. O Lord, save. This is what Hosanna is all about. This is Psalm 115. These are the children on Palm Monday saying, Hosanna, O Lord, do save. Not for our sake, for your sake. Do not delay. Your city and your name are called by your name. And so the answer to this prayer, the answer to this prayer is a prophecy of 77s. The answer to this prayer is that he will forgive the national rebellion of Israel, but it's going to require Messiah the Prince to be cut off. It's going to require the sacrifice of their Messiah. So, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my whole people, you wonder how long it took him to do this? 21 days. It's amazing. There was a, quite a delay I might be blending this with a later chapter. Let me hold off on that. So I think he prayed from morning to evening, not 21 days. It's a later occasion for 21 days. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, presenting my supplications before the Lord my God, here comes Gabriel. And Gabriel's going to give him the answer. And the answer is 70 weeks. 70 sevens have been decreed for your people. Now I realize... You've had a background in prophecy. You've got a background in eschatology. You understand the 77s. It's the calendar for the Messiah. It's the calendar for the fact that 69 of those sevens are done. One seven remains. That's why we know the tribulation is still future, and it's a seven-year tribulation beyond which is the millennial kingdom. I get all that. But stop and ask yourself, what are these 77s about anyway? They're about God providing for the, the redeemed covenant nation in broken relationship with him. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. What transgression? 
the Jewish people in rebellion of the Mosaic Covenant. To make an end of sin. What sin? Israel's sin in rebellion against their covenant God. To Not, not to stop all personal sins. That, that requires uh, no more fallen human beings. To make atonement for iniquity. Atonement for what iniquity? Israel's national iniquity. The iniquity germ, uh, that Daniel is praying for in this chapter. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That is the kingdom of righteousness, Jesus Christ on the throne of righteousness in the millennial kingdom. To seal up vision and prophecy. That's the anointed Jewish people in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ when they have the prophetic office in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And to anoint the most holy place. That's Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus Christ taking his own blood into the heaven, heavenly sanctuary and cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. All right. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, and then it goes on, Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. Jesus Christ gets crucified in verse 26. Messiah the prince is cut off and has nothing. All right. So is he going to abolish Mosaic law? No. He's going to fulfill He's going to fulfill through a covenant promise. He's going to fulfill through a great prophecy uttered by Daniel with a, with a timetable, with a calendar and um, fulfilled by Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross and uh, the remainder of it is waiting for him to come back at second advent because that blood has been set aside. It's in the little bowls. It needs to be now applied to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel so he can bring them into the millennial kingdom. All right. A victorious conclusion that in the future will provide for Israel's broken relationship to be restored and their eternal national inheritance to be received. Did you think this was talking about you in Hebrews 9.15? A lot of people do. There's good commentaries that do. All right. (laughs) Again, Hebrews 9.15. What are we talking about today? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, was that us? Of course not. We were never under the first covenant. You and I never violated Mosaic law because we were never under Mosaic law. The redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So don't switch streams in this context. We're still dealing with Israel. They've been called. They have their own eternal inheritance. The promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, He can bring them into the kingdom. The Jewish kingdom. Because He died to pay for those sins under the first covenant. Those who have been called. It wasn't Egypt. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Greece. It wasn't Babylon, Persia, Greece, or Rome. Israel. The Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, they are the called, they are the chosen people, they are the sanctified covenant nation on this earth, they have an eternal inheritance on this earth, ours of course is heavenly, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, for them to get their inheritance, all right, real quickly, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. Where was that? Where did he go? He didn't go to heaven. He went to Canaan. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the heavenly Jerusalem to descend out of heaven. Never came in his lifetime. He's still looking for it. It was still promised to him. He will still have it. Millennial kingdom. Galatians 3.18, Acts 7.5, Psalm 105, verses 9 through 11. I'll let you read Galatians. Well, let's see. Galatians 3.18. How fast can I flip? Galatians. 
The inheritance is based on, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So something has to re- resolve the issue with the law. That's what Jesus does on the cross. Acts 7, 5. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Abraham believed the promises of God. This was his land, the promised land. But he paid cash for the cave to bury Sarah in. It was his cave. But he lived as a pilgrim and a stranger, as if it wasn't his, and uh, paid cash for the cave of Machpelah. Finally, Psalm 105. I've got to close with this. Psalm 105. This uh, part of our fullness of time study. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. All of that came before the covenant with Moses. He has to be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to a thousand generations. So the Christ has to die to resolve the Mosaic covenant. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. There's so many deep issues at work here, Father, that that take together the law, the prophets, the New Testament, all of this centered in Israel, your earthly nation. Father, Thank you for the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews does a masterful job at weaving through the present reality for the church and the future reality for the Jewish people. Father, after we are raptured out of here, the book of Hebrews is going to be so powerful for tribulational uh, martyrs, for the saints that get saved after the rapture, for the 144,000 evangelists, for those that uh, are holding out to the, the future of Israel. Father, this is a powerful book, and we're just, we're just scratching it, Father. Thank you for the blessings of how you teach. Thank you for a body of believers that's not here for the, the music program or the entertainment, the fun of the games. They're not here for uh, any of the earthly show. They want the spiritual reality of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless our studies, Father, and, and equip us. We are servants of this new covenant. Equip us even now with our present adequacy so that we can fully engage in our future adequacy when, this, uh, when it comes time to apply this covenant to the Jewish people. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.